So I'm going to read um, Ephesians chapter two in Mandarin. Please bear with me. Um, 你们死在过犯罪恶之中，他叫你们活过来。那时你们在其中行事为人，随从今世的风俗，顺服空中掌权者的首领，就是现今在悖逆之子心中运行的邪灵。我们从前也都在他们中间放纵肉体的私欲，随着肉体和心中所喜好去行。本为可怒之子，和别人一样。然而，神既有丰富的怜悯，因他爱我们的大爱，当我们死在过犯中的时候，便叫我们与一基督一同活过来。你们得救是本乎恩，他又叫我们与基督耶稣一同复活，一同坐在天上，要将他极丰富的恩典，就是他在基督耶稣里向我们所施所所施的恩慈，显明给后来的世代看。你们得救是本乎恩，也因着信。这并不是出于自己，乃是神所赐的；也不是出于行为，免得有人自夸。我们原是他的工作，在耶基督耶稣里造成的，为要叫我们行善，就是神所预备叫我们行的。所以你们应当纪念：你们从前按肉按肉体是外邦人，是称为没受割礼的。这名原是那些凭人手在肉身上称为受割礼之人所起的。那时你们与基督无关，在以色列国民以外，在所应许的诸约上是局外人，并且活在世上没有指望，没有神。你们从前远离神的人，如今却在耶稣基督里靠着他的血已经得清净了。因他使我们和睦，原文是因他是我们的和睦，将两下合而为一，拆毁了中间隔断的墙，而且以自身的身体废废掉冤仇，就是那记在律法上的规条。为要将两下接着自己造成一个新人，如此便成就了和睦。既在十字架上灭了冤仇，便借着这十十字架使两下归为一体，与神和好了，并且来传和平的福音给你们远处的人，也给那近处的人。因为我们两下借着他被一个圣灵所感，得以进到父面前。这样你们不再做外人和客旅，是与圣徒同国，是神家里的人了。并且被建造在使徒和先知的根基上，有耶稣基督为自己，呃，有基督耶稣自己为房角石，房靠他联络得合适，呃，各房靠他联络得合适，渐渐成为主的圣殿。你们也靠他同被建造，成为神借着圣灵居住的所在。Thank you. Thank you. 各位朋友，我将读从《Ephesians》开始。对。And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at God's Word together. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it always is to hear your Word read. And now as we seek to hear it taught, we pray that you might help me to speak it faithfully, convictingly, helpfully. Father, please, by your Spirit, preach a better sermon than what I've prepared and help us all to listen and obey and be led by you. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Where is God leading us? Where is God leading us according to his will? Now these are big questions. And the answer to this enormous question really leaves implications for our lives, doesn't it? The answer to this question, where is God leading us according to his will, will direct every seemingly big decision or seemingly little decision that we make. Remember your seminars. I mean, should Melinda go on exchange to China or study indigenous studies? Should she go with her heart and what she's excited about? Or should she deny herself because that's what you should do and therefore really put a lid on the excitement. Uh, was Rohan, or Rowan, depending on how you pronounce that name, going against God's will in moving in with Angus? Was that against God's will? Or should he have denied himself because Angus was such a blob and dirty that he shouldn't have actually moved in with him? So what's the go? Well, tonight we're actually going to look at Ephesians in more detail 
And we hope that in looking at Ephesians in more detail, it will provide the principles that we can actually work toward in answering such questions. See, what is God's will for his people? Well, you might recall from last night that we learned that the God who led his people, who leads his people, is our loving, sovereign Father. And we also learnt that he had a cosmic will, as it were. And it was there, and well, on page 13, you'll find, um, we're just going to go back a little bit, but we're using the manuscript in our books here because it's from the English Standard Version. It's just helpful to use the same translation. In verse 9, on page 13, the verse 9, we learnt the will of God last night. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, God's will involves the entire cosmos. God's will is to unite all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth, in his best timing, in the fullness of time. See, history is not simply a random collection of events. There is nothing random in this world. Every time I hear the word random, I get a bit of a twitch, you know, because there's no such thing as random. Every time you hear the word random, you should get a bit of a twitch, right? I want to see you twitching through the week. Every time you use the word random, you should decapitate yourself, right? Because there is nothing random in this world. Right? History is the working out of events in conformity with the sovereign will of God. History is heading to a climax in which everything and everyone will be united in Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father. So, this is where God is leading us. Now, that's the first point uh, in your outline there. That is the where. God is leading us to a new creation united in Jesus. And as we saw last night, this was God's plan from the very beginning. Right from Genesis in the Garden of Eden, God's plan was a dynamic mission from Israel to the nations, resulting in the lavish outpouring of God's spiritual blessings upon us as our loving, sovereign Father. That was last night. Now, if God's will is to unite all things in Christ through Israel to the nations, then what is the reality now? This is what we covered largely in our seminar today to some extent, didn't we? What is the reality now? Well, when you're on page 15, the top there of our Bible reading, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which... You once walked. You were dead. You came into this world stillborn. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Your walk is your way of life. Your walk is how you live. And you were the walking dead. Because... You were outside of Christ. He's speaking especially to those 
who were Gentiles before they became Christians. And that may well be you describing your life before you became a Christian. Because outside of Christ, we're dead. We might look alive, but we're dead. We're like cut flowers placed into a vase. They look pretty for a little while, don't they? But they're dead. Every time you spend $35 buying these flowers to someone, think of it. It's dead money. It's death that you're giving to someone in the end. I'm sorry. Please buy them for your friend. But just remember, they're dead, right? I was actually serving, uh, I was setting a table at my sister-in-law's place. And they had these beautiful roses in a vase. And I actually touched one of the roses on, on, on route. And, and all the petals just fell down immediately. It was a beautiful rose, but it was dead, right? It'll look alive for a while. In fact, it'll even grow for a while. It might even sprout for a while, but it's dead. That's what we are. The walking dead if we're outside of Christ. And why are we dead? Look at it again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Part of the reason we're dead is because we follow the course of this world. Now, what does that mean, to follow the course of this world? Well, just for a moment, why don't you ask each other that? I'll give you 30 seconds. Speak to the person next to you. What does it mean to follow the course of this world? Go. 30 seconds. Okay, let's hear some answers. What does it mean to be following the course of this world? Anybody got any ideas? How about from this side of the room? Okay, how about this side of the room? <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> any ideas? Yeah? Um, the idea of the world being simply chimerically being objects to make their own yeah, we're following, we're following a course in which they are rejecting God. Yeah, how, does that, how is that expressed in this world? Yeah, joining them in them, uh, with them in death and joining them with them in sin. But how does that look like? What does it look like to follow them in death? You know, they're, they're saying, oh, I'm dead, follow me. I'm a zombie. That's why we watch zombie movies together. You know, is that, is that how we follow the living dead? How does it express itself? Did you talk about that in your seminars a little bit? Oh, what kind of seminars did you do? I mean, I, it's pathetic, isn't it? In the end, well, have a look at it again. It, 
As and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, as we follow the world, we have a distorted love for the voices of this world. Isn't that how we follow the world? We follow what the world says. We'd rather listen to the voices on social media, follow the voices on the news, follow the experts and their research, rather than the voice of God. That's how we follow the world. Jeanette and I were in Montreal, Canada for various reasons recently. We visited some uh, friends who were there. They had a six-year-old daughter who goes to kindergarten, the equivalent and the teacher of the kindergarten children said to them, don't listen to your parents when it comes to sexuality. Listen to what we teach you. Because your parents are just way behind on this issue. Isn't that incredible? See, that's the way of the world. You guys are going to be in that world very soon. We're just following that track. But it goes on to say that as we follow the ways of this world, we actually follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, the way that we follow the, power or the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil, is by following the ways of this world. So if you follow the world, you're actually following the devil. You see that? And that's expressed... In carrying out the desires of the body, verse 3, and the mind. As the followers of the world, we are followers of the devil, and that expresses itself in our natural passions, the passions of the flesh, the natural desires of our bodies and minds that are bent in on ourselves. Because that's what our hearts are like in there. There's this in-curve. We want to do what's best for us in the end. It's as if our hearts have gravity of itself. Isn't it? the, the earth has gravity. There was a, a rocket that was meant to take off, but it kind of crashed. Did you hear about that recently? It was a private thing. Well, that's what our hearts are like. Whatever wants to go out kind of comes back in because we're in-curve in terms of our desires. Just... Take note of a number of these references. We won't look them up, but I'll read it out to you. But if you're taking notes, here are the references. In Genesis 6, verse 5, Genesis 6, verse 5, speaking of humanity, God says, every inclination of the heart was continually evil. Every inclination of the heart. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, for from within, out of the heart of humanity, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These are our natural desires. These come from our hearts. These come from within, says Jesus. If you've ever seen the Mark drama, it's that point where Jesus starts pointing to all these people and they say all those things coming out of the heart. Do you recall? Ephesians 4.22 our old selves were corrupt with deceitful desires. Our desires are deceitful. Our, our hearts are filled with 
evil from within. Every inclination of the heart is continually evil. That's our natural bent. That's our natural desire. And I wonder whether you see that in yourselves or not. Do you see that in your speech life? When you speak, is your natural bent to say stuff that protects your image? I mean, if you ever lie, why do you lie? It's so that you will look good somehow, isn't it? In your sex life, is it your natural bent to seek your own fleeting pleasure? Just your natural bent. And when push comes to shove, do you naturally choose to serve yourself or serve others? If I know my natural inclination, I suspect I know yours because I feel like my heart has this gravity that just keeps on bending in on itself in all these areas. And what does the world tell us to do? Follow your heart. You hear that? Be true to yourself. But what's the world going to be like if you are true to yourself? If you follow your heart, if that's what your heart is really like? Oh, it's a disaster. I don't want to follow my heart because I know what my heart is like. I don't want to be true to myself because I know what true to myself is like. And I take it that you shouldn't either if you know what it's like because that's what Jesus says. That's what God says our hearts are like. We're following the course of this world, which means following the devil, which means following the passions of our desires. They're like three cords that are plaited together in this strong, strong rope. And that's why we're dead. Even the world can see this, you know, that if we follow our hearts, it's a disaster. Hands up if you've seen La La Land. Keep your hand up if you liked it. <laughs> Some hands went down. Okay, about half of us. If you haven't seen it, it's about a guy and a girl who accidentally meet and somehow they fall in love, but in the end they follow their own hearts and do their own thing. It doesn't quite work out, but there's, right near the end, they, they meet again, and as they meet again, they go through a possibility of what it would have been like if they actually did come together. And it's all happily ever after in that scenario, but then it comes back to reality, and it turns out that it doesn't work out. Because the whole idea is that the way it could have worked out if they didn't follow their own ambition was la-la land. It was just la-la-la-la land. It was stupid, it could never work out because if you follow your heart, well, it doesn't work out. So even the world can work that out. I worked out that whole critique on a Monday night dinner, by the way. Thank you very much. Daniel Pearson, who, who is the film critique of all time, uh, and helped me understand what La La Land was all about. But do you see, the world can work that out. If you follow your heart, it doesn't work out. That's just La La. God's way is indeed the best way. But sin, sin offends God. 
And it even, it's even seen in the life of Christians, isn't it? We naturally think, we Christians, that God should revolve around us and our desires and our plans and our purposes. So I'll have a particular plan and purpose, and God's there to help me well, do well in my purposes and my plans, whatever they are. So I plan to do X, Y, and Z. I have to marry so, so and so. I'm going to work in such a place. And so God's there to help me accomplish these things. And so it's as if God revolves around my will and my plans. Is that how you think about God? Because it's meant to be the other way around, where it's God's will, and I'm meant to align my will and my plans, my purpose around what He has planned. What his will is, because that's what real Christian life is all about. And it's actually the best way to live. Just that the world continues to tell us that we should be doing it our way rather than God's way, even as Christians. And we have this Christian veneer, as it were. I read my Bible, I go to church, but I'm going to have this plan for my life, whatever it is. And God's there to help me do that. But in the end, you see, that's exactly what sin is about. It's this in-curve, this distorted love for myself, of my passions and my desires, which means following the ways of this world and ultimately following the devil. That's what God says. And as such, we deserve God's anger. That's why we read at the end of verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And his God is angry at us if we have this natural incurve because it's evil. Our inclinations are evil. Our desires are evil. And God is angry at evil because he loves. Evil provokes God to anger. The wrath of God is exactly the opposite of a character blip or a nasty side of God. No, God's anger is proof of the sincerity of his love the sincerity of his care. Because through his wrath, the living God shows that he is truly loving. He cares, and he cares enough to actually judge and judge rightly. And through his wrath, he will destroy all evil. And we are by nature evil. And we are by nature people who deserve his anger. In his pure love, God cannot tolerate evil. And what is evil is to be bent in on ourselves. So do you see this as something that you deserve? Are you bent in on yourself? Are you living like the world revolves around you instead of revolving around Jesus? Because please know that every person in this world deserves God's anger, whether they come from Asia or Europe or North America or South America or Africa or Australia. Everyone, including my moral, upright father, or the educated lecturer, or the religious person who goes to church every Sunday, or whoever it is, everyone deserves God's anger. Even the Pope deserves God's anger. There is no one 
no one who should be let off. But this is where we come to one of the most beautiful words in the Bible at the beginning of the verse 4. B-U-T. But. Now here's the good news. Note it's one T, not two. <laughs> but. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, God is love. His ways always are to love, always other person-centered, always facing out. And out of, the human, sorry, out of the fountain of his great love, he did three things for those who are in Christ that we learn in these verses here. He made us alive together with Christ, verse 5. He raised us up with Christ, verse 6. He seated us with Christ, verse 6. In the heavenly places, the arena of victory that we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, last night. Note here, although we are in Watersley tonight, somehow, if we are in Christ, we are in the heavenly places seated with Christ. We're seated with Christ. We can't get any closer to Christ. If you are in Christ, you are as close to God as you can ever, ever get. The minister is no closer to God than the person in the pew. The person who you admire for their godliness is no more closer to God than you are if you are in Christ. It may be that you're less like Christ because of opportunity or lack of opportunity. But if you are in Christ by his grace, you are as close to Christ as anybody. Just ponder that. You are seated with Christ now. And it's all, all, all of God's grace of his undeserved generosity. And so we read in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Right? This undeserved generosity of God is something that is a gift to us. Salvation, being saved through faith, is all a gift to us. In fact, even our faith is a gift to us. It's part of the whole package. Everything that we have, our trust in God is a gift of God. So it's not my doing. I don't do anything to be saved. God does everything to be saved. It's 100% God and 0% me when it comes to me being saved. I do nothing Nothing. God does everything. It's all by his grace. It's all by his kindness. It's all by his undeserved generosity. However, having been saved, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is to say that we are saved to do good works. The good works don't save us. But rather, because we are saved, that's why we do good. 
doing good is an expression of being saved. It's not that something that saves me, it's something that a saved person will do. The kind of good works that were prepared beforehand by God. The good works that are in accordance with the sovereign will of God. So to sum up so far, firstly the where. Where is God leading us? He's leading us ultimately to have all things in heaven and on earth united in Christ, in the new creation. Everything summed up under the headship of Christ. But the reality now is that humanity outside of Christ continue to be the walking dead, under the wrath of God because of our natural desires to resist his love, because of the incurve in our own lives. But those of us in Christ have been supernaturally raised up with him to do good works in accordance with his will and pleasure. That's the where, that's the now. And now at point three, it's the how. How is God going to lead us? If that's where we're headed, if that's the reality now, then how is he going to lead us to the where? Well, here we come to the first command in the book of Ephesians. Do you know what the first command is? Verse 11. First command in the entire letter of Ephesians. Therefore, remember. That's the first command. Isn't that amazing? Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The first thing that God wills for his people to do in terms of good works in Ephesians is to remember, remember your past in relation to Israel. I think, what? I came here this week to find out who I'm going to marry. And he tells me to remember stuff regarding Israel. I came here to find out what job I should have, where I should live. Yeah, we'll get there, we'll get there. But first, remember. Remember your past. Why? Because that's where your Christian identity lies. Believe it or not, our Christian identity is always tied up with Israel's identity in history. I'm not referring to current politics of Israel with Palestine or the Gaza Strip or who should get Jerusalem as their capital today. No, I'm referring to biblical history. God chose Israel to be his own people when he made his promises to Abram. Remember last night? That's what we talked about. God's people came from Abram's descendants. And it wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because they were more numerous. It wasn't because they were more moral. No, it was all of God's grace. He chose them. Why did he choose them above all other nations? Because he did. That's all. And he chose them to be his particular people. He chose them to be his son, as it were, to be a father to his son. And in relation to that people, to the Israelites, we who are the nations, if, if there is anyone here of Jewish descent, you are in the primary category. right? We are the second category. We, we are the Johnny-come-latelys, as I said last night. We've come along far down in the history of time, but we are here by God's grace, aren't we? So we're kind of added on at the end, as it were. But no, no, it's not quite that. We were in mind from the beginning, weren't we? When he said we are to be a... Uh, God said to Abram that he would be a blessing to the nations. And here we are, blessed off our cotton socks, if you wear cotton socks. But we're blessed, blessed beyond belief, as people who are now blessed 
in Christ. But in relation to Israel, we Gentiles, we non-Jewish people, described as the uncircumcision, we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from Israel. We were strangers to the covenant. We didn't have any hope. We were without God in the world. It's kind of echoes of being the walking dead in verses 1 to 3. However, again, we come to that beautiful word in verse 13 again. But... See that verse 13? But but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, biblical history was divided between two groups of people, Israel and the rest, Israel and the nations. And there were laws that preserved that distinction, even expressed in the design of the temple with a wall that separated Jews from the nations, Jews from the Gentiles. But Jesus came as a Jew to destroy this dividing wall. He came not only to bring people to himself, but to bring these people together. He came to unite Jews and Gentiles into one body through the cross. Through the cross. Do you know, at one stage in history, the second person to become the General Secretary of the United Nations in 1954 said that the only place in which the world can be a truly united nations is at the cross of Jesus Christ. General Secretary of the United Nations said that. Truly, really, 1954, the second General Secretary. It is only through the cross of Christ that such a thing can happen. Only through the cross of Christ. These Jewish Christians were described in a particular way But note before that in verse 18, verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We couldn't call God Father before. Israel could, but the nations couldn't until Jesus came. Last night we saw that God is our loving, sovereign Father. And now he wins Jew and Gentile to the same uniting love within himself, which spills over into a heartfelt love for each other. And he unites us to his son so that we can all roll that word around in our mouth. Father. Call God Father. Like no other religion can do. But we can because of Jesus. And this new humanity is a new family. And it's a spreading family of the Father. And look at what we can all enjoy together in verse 19. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Literally citizens together with the saints. So who are the saints there? Well, the saints are Jewish Christians. If you're fellow citizens with the saints as Gentiles, then the saints must refer to Jewish Christians here, mustn't they? 
See, the word saint doesn't mean Christian only. Now, at the beginning of Paul's letters, when it says to the saints, at, it usually means all Christians. But in other contexts, like here, the word saints actually refers to Jewish Christians. Clearly, that's what it's saying there, isn't it? I, you grew up always thinking you're either a saint or you ain't. Right? But you can be a saint without being an ain't, as it were. That is, you can be a Jewish Christian and not, sorry, uh, you can be a Jewish Christian, not a Gentile Christian, and as such, not be a saint because I'm a Gentile Christian in this context. But that's what he's referring to there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens, right? citizens together with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, we who are the nations, we who are Gentiles and our fellow citizens, citizens together, verse 19, joined together, verse 21, built together, verse 22, with our Jewish brothers and sisters, the saints, if they too are in Christ. Now, why does this all matter? Because this is how God is bringing about his will. This is how he's heading us to the where of uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. That is, through the apostolic mission that continues today, God is uniting his people in the world in a cosmic plan to create a whole new humanity in Christ, a new body, a new class of people together, a worldwide body made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That's how he's bringing about this great plan and purpose, ultimately, in terms of the where. And Paul describes this plan, this, this how, as a mystery. We're going to sneak into chapter 3, so turn over the page. We're just going to look at a couple of verses here in chapter 3 on page 17. Go to verse 4. It's chapter 3, verse 4. We read, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, there was a mystery that was not made known to the generations gone by. What does it mean by mystery? It's not a mystery in the sense that you can never find out what it is, like the origin of Stonehenge or the Loch Ness Monster or the Drop Bear or something like that. The... the Stonehenge, I saw a documentary on Stonehenge. They actually think that it was a burial site for the Neolithic age beforehand. It's quite a, a, an intriguing, but it's still a, a theory. It's mysterious in that sense. But this is not mysterious. It's something that was hidden, as it were, but is now revealed. It's kind of like the name I was originally given on my birth certificate, but it was crossed out. Anybody know what that name is? Anybody want to guess what my name was? John, you're wrong. <laughs> Any other guess? James. No, it didn't start with a J, silly. Jehoiachin, closer, but no, Chin was in there. Do you know what the name was? It was Clifford. Clifford. <laughs> I could have been a Clifford. But literally, if you look at my birth certificate, it says Clifford and it's crossed out, right? I have 
revealed the mystery to you. You've always wanted to know that, didn't you? Haven't you? You've always wanted to know that I was a Clifford. But I'm a Richard. So there. That's kind of what's going on here. There is a mystery that is far more significant than Clifford. And what is that mystery that is now revealed? Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is, now the Gentiles, the nations, stand on equal par with the Jews, looking forward to the same inheritance of heaven, now receiving the same promises, the same blessings, because of the international gospel for the world. The international gospel that Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection. And to understand our part in the will of God, we've got to understand this mystery. Why? Because it really has cosmic implications. That's why. Big implications. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, Paul the Apostle. Though I am the very least of all the saints, of all the Jewish Christians, I'm the least of them, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities In the heavenly places. This is huge. See, how does God accomplish his will? By means of the apostolic mission, which is to preach the gospel, the news that Jesus is king, that he is Lord of heaven and earth, that everything will be united in him ultimately, that he is Lord because of his death and resurrection. And as that gospel is preached, Christ's blessings are shared through Israel to the nations, as it were, resulting in a new humanity, a new family, a heavenly family, seated in the heavenly places that testifies to the power of God's wisdom. It is the spreading family of the Father through the Son. So what is God's will for his people? What is God's will for you? For me, but that's what we came here to find out, isn't it? It is to be the family of God. That's his will, which by its very existence makes known to the world and to the rules and authorities in the heavenly places that the God of love is the only hope for world peace. That he can and will unite enemies, rivals and strangers into one loving family under his fatherly care through the unbelievably good news of Jesus, the gospel concerning his life, his death, his resurrection, that he is Lord of heaven and earth. That's his will. Is that an anticlimax for you? What about who am I going to marry? What about my work? What about where I'm going to live? Well, does it revolve around his plans and his purposes? His will? Three questions for you in finishing. 
And they're kind of from the most important to the lesser important. I won't say least because the last question is a pretty important question. First question I want to ask you is, are you firstly in Christ? Are you in Christ? As do you actually believe this news of Jesus that he is truly Lord, that he is really number one of your life? Because if he's not number one of your life, and he's not Lord. I remember coming to my first mid-year conference about three years ago. And at that first mid-year conference, I didn't understand anything that the speaker said. Maybe some of you feel that way as well. But the one thing I remember he said was this. If you want to know whether you're a Christian or not, ask yourself whether Jesus is number one of your life. And I knew at that point that he wasn't number one. I was going to church. In fact, I was going to a local uniting church where I went to in Fairfield at the time. I was going regularly. There was this lovely family that was looking after me in all sorts of ways. And I was moral. I didn't even have an overdue library book. I was so good. Lecturers liked me. I liked them. But he wasn't number one. He was a good number two and number three, but he wasn't number one. I wasn't revolving around him and his will. I was getting on with my career, thank you very much. But church was there to just help me and God was there to revolve around me and my will. But I want to ask you, are you in Christ? Because if you're not in Christ, please hear what we heard at the beginning. You are under the wrath of God. And the only way you can be saved from the wrath of God is by trusting what Jesus has done to save you. Because that is the only way. Because all the anger of God that should be poured out on you and me was turned aside from us and poured out on Jesus so that I can come to know God as my Father and Jesus as my Lord. But I can only do that by trusting in what Jesus did to save me by his grace. First question, are you in Christ? And if you're not sure that you're in Christ, please talk to someone tonight. That's the most important thing you can ask. Secondly, if you are in Christ, then are you done with your passions? If you are in Christ, are you done with your passions? Those passions that we talked about in verse 3. The in-curve. Now we all have desires, so I'm not saying that they're always bad desires. Christians have good desires and it's good to have desires for things. I'm talking about the in-curve desires, the desires that have an a distorted love for this world where we're following the voices of this world and ultimately following the devil Ultimately being the kind of people who in the end follow the natural desires of the body and mind. Are you done with those desires? By done, if you are in Christ, I'm not saying that you will be sinless. But if you're in Christ, you will hate sin, won't you? Now I take that back at one level. 
Why do you sin? And because you like it, that's why. Isn't it? Otherwise, you wouldn't sin. It's just that we like it. We like the fleeting pleasure of it because it is pleasurable. See, when was the last time you were selfish? When was the last time that you lied? And when was the last time you looked at porn? What are the areas of godliness that you ignore, you don't take seriously? If you're in Christ, I take it you will actually hate those things after you commit them. And before, as it were, when you're in sober-minded times. Like here at this conference, it's so easy to be a Christian here, isn't it? But when you're on your own in the darkness of your own room or when you're with your special someone in the darkness of some place somewhere and no one else is watching, why it's so easy to follow the in curve. But if you're in Christ, the second question, are you done with that? Be killing sin or it will be killing you, said John Owen. Can I suggest to you that you need a better desire than a desire to sin? If you're in Christ, then desiring to follow God, desiring God, that's the name of a book, by the way, by John Piper, which is a good book as well. That desire is a better desire than sin. So you need a better desire. You've got to nurture that better desire, whatever that better desire is. And it's, it works that way, doesn't it? You can think of a 14-year-old who has this desire to play League of Legends all the time. And you just can't stop the boy from playing League of Legends. And suddenly the boy stops. You're like, what's going on? There's a girl. There's a greater desire than League of Legends. There's a greater desire than sin, and that's God. And nurture the desire for God. Nurture for the, your desire for the things of God. Have a better desire. Firstly, are you in Christ? Secondly, are you done with evil passions in your life by having a better desire? Thirdly, then, will you live your life and die your death to align your will with God's will? Will you live your life and die your death to align your will with God's will? For his will is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? So that we can see Jew and Gentile united under Christ. That's where the world is headed. And so we need laborers for that harvest to continue in his plans and purposes. Will you align your will with God's will? As George Whitfield wrote in a hymn, Come thou fount of every blessing, the one who gives us every blessing, that's God in Christ. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. May my heart 
be aligned with your gracious will, in other words. And we're going to be singing that later. And I hope you, when you sing those words, that's what we're praying, that my will will be aligned with God's will. And please note, God is not sitting in his lounge chair as we labor in evangelism in his harvest field to bring him more servants. Rather, God is already on mission in love. The Father has sent his Son and his Spirit. It is the outworking of his very nature that we align ourselves with. And when we do align ourselves with God's will, we will live as world Christians, appreciating your call to be a part of the worldwide body of Christ. See, what will this mean for Melinda and Rohan, the pretend characters from our seminars? Well, let me suggest to you, here are the principles. Whatever decisions they make, they need to ask the question, how do their decisions possibly align with God's will for a whole new humanity, a new family, a heavenly family seated in the heavenly places that testifies to the power of God's wisdom? See, that's a big plan. It's a big will. You didn't get up this morning and think that. How am I going to make my will go around God's will that way? But I'm asking you to do that tonight. As you make any decision about what you do next semester, let alone in years ahead, how does your will align with God's will in terms of his ultimate will in the end? Every little decision, every big decision that you make, how does it actually align towards that end? Here are some practical suggestions for you to align your will with God's will. We've heard it tonight. Why don't you go to a focus meeting? to love and be loved by our brothers and sisters from all over the world. There you see the gospel going to the nations. Why don't you become a gospel buddy by meeting one-to-one with someone from overseas? That would be a great thing to do. That's aligning your will with God's will, isn't it? Because you actually start to see how the gospel is going to the nations. You're actually helping the gospel go to the nations when the nations have already come here. Why not keep praying for the spread of the gospel throughout the world? There's a book called Operation World that tells you something about every country in this world. and You can pray through that or pray through a diary of one of our mission societies like the Church Missionary Society or OMF or SIM. There are prayer diaries that are available and you can pray for Christians all over the world and pray for missionaries all over the world and pray for Dave and Liz as they serve in Asia and pray for Seth and Kate that we met last year as they work in Gospel Zero Buddhist Asia as well. Let's keep praying for them and praying for what it is that they are doing, wherever they are going. You know, currently all our Bible colleges in Sydney have alarmingly low numbers because fewer people are wanting to do ministry apprenticeships and fewer people are wanting to go to Bible colleges because fewer people actually have lost, well, more people have lost sight of the will of God for the world, I take it. It's a, it's a, it's a real sadness in the end. So to that end, can I encourage you in a couple of things, and those things in particular, if you want to align your will with God's will, why not start thinking as a world Christian? Two specific things that I'd love you to consider tonight. One is there is a conference for the South Pacific in Vanuatu. That sounds like an incredible place to go to for the tourism or something like that. We're actually going to get together with people from the South Pacific to see how it is that we can see the gospel go to that part of the world. If you're possibly interested in coming to that, it does cost a bit of money and we can't help you there altogether. And there's all sorts of conferences we'd love to to go to. But if you are especially interested in the South Pacific, 
this would be a great conference to come to. And I'd love you to come and talk to me about that. Yeah. The second thing is at the end of our booklet, at the, at the, sorry, the last page of the book, the, the, the cover at the end, go to the very end, you'll see something called Challenge Day 2018, Saturday the 4th of August. It's 9am to 1pm, not 3pm. So I'll just put there, it's just the morning. 9am to 1pm. On that occasion, there's a fellow by the name of Paul Grimmond who's actually going to speak to us about what it might mean to consider full-time gospel work. And we'll actually have Bible colleges there represented uh, who can talk to us about Bible colleges. They can also uh, answer all sorts of questions, but Paul's going to be answering questions and will be there, and you might have interviews and so on. We'd love you to keep that day free to consider what it might mean for you if gospel work or vocational ministry is something that you ought to consider. So as we come to an end, please note this, that God's will, through his apostolic mission that continues today, is to unite his people in the world in a cosmic plan to create a whole new humanity in Christ, a new body, a new class of people together, a worldwide body made up of Jews and Gentiles seated in the heavenly places that testifies to the power of God's wisdom. Will you align your will with God's will, whatever that might look like? We're going to have question time later this evening. And I hope you can bring your questions to that. But why don't we pray now as we consider some of these things. We thank you, dear Father, that your will is to create this whole new humanity in Jesus. And we pray that you'll help us to align our will with yours. So that every seemingly little or big decision will be made in line with this will, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.